Hi and welcome to the Unconventionalist Podcast, the show about what it's really like to do work you love. My name is Mark DeRoost and today's guest is Ravenol Chambers, the founder of Be Inspired Films. Now, before I get into today's incredible story, I just wanted to say a big, heart-warmed, filled thank you to all of you who've been listening to the show in and out. And I know that I haven't been as consistent as always in the last few weeks. There's been lots of stuff going on. I'll be sharing that in the future episodes. But I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Some of you have been messaging me and some of you have been posting on Instagram and on Twitter where you've been listening to the show. And that's been amazing. Thank you so much. And this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for you. So if you actually enjoy what we do, if you enjoy the shows that I put out, share it with one friend. That is the one ask that I ask of you to to contribute and help out and I'll keep on producing content and I'll keep on interviewing people and I'll keep on putting them out there and you can help out by sharing it with one friend that you think could benefit from hearing to this uh, podcast. So thank you so much for that. So today's guest is Ravenel Chambers and who's got a very unconventional story as to how he ended up doing what he's doing. And I think that's what I love about this show is that I want to show you that there isn't a single path or a single way to achieve something, whether that's figuring out what you really want to do or starting your own business or starting your own project or launching something, that there is no one cookie cutter way of doing it. Now, all of these guests are here to inspire you and to empower you to set off on your own journey. And if you've got any questions or if anything comes up, do let me know over on Twitter at Mark Roost. So that's enough from me. I give you the one and only Ravenol Chambers. Ravenel, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, man. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool to have you. Um, one of the things I try and, and, and remember when I have guests on is like, how do we meet? And um, I spoke in an event that Daniel Priestley put up um, about the um, campaign-driven enterprise. And I remember at the end when it all finished, I saw a guy that was kind of in the background said, hey, have you got a minute to talk? And I was like, oh, I'm not quite sure what this is about, but okay, cool. And then we s- ended up sitting down on the sofa in the hotel lobby and we just started speaking. That's right, yeah, yeah. And we yeah. just I was just like, oh my God, mate, you need to come on the show. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. thought like you're an incredible soul. Um, so first of all, I'm sure everybody's asking themselves, Ravenel, where does Ravenel come from? Yeah, it's pretty unusual. It's, um, it's actually a name of a character out of a movie that my dad saw. So it's an old really? old time musical called Showboat. Okay. So people of a certain age will go, oh yeah, they've heard of Showboat. So it's yeah, it's an old man river kind of deep south American thing. Yeah. I was the Mississippi gambler. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're originally from Ireland. I'm uh, Irish. I yeah. grew up in Dublin. Yeah. So yeah, very much not not a typical Irish name or anything like that. I was always the slightly different guy, I guess, by the name first. Yeah. And then in a way by character as well in <laughs> some ways. <laughs> but yeah. So um, you're the founder of Be Inspired Films mm-hmm. um, and you believe in, in stories and how stories can have an impact. That's right. Um, and before we get into the kind of the story, how did you end up in, in film? How did you end up in making videos and content and stories? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because I've always been a bit, um, I would say schizophrenic, not actually schizophrenic. <laughs> uh, th- thank God. But um, uh, what it is, is I started off as a teenager wanting to be a stockbroker. So I was bo- I was growing up in the 80s, very sort of, you know, uh, the that f- that this, this thing of, you know, greed is good and, you know, Wall Street sure. film and all that. Um, probably quite an obnoxious, quite confident, uh, but quite an obnoxious little fella. Um, but then very quickly uh, ended up doing a degree in psychology, working internationally uh, for charities as a fundraiser and project manager. I, I quickly sort of realized that actually I wanted to try and do something to help mm. others in the world. Um, so when I was living in East Africa in 1995, 96, 
I made a film. And I wasn't planning to be a filmmaker. I just thought, we're doing some great work here with street kids and we're running some orphanages. I really need to let other people see what's going on here so they can fund it, they can support it. And I did that. That was back in the days, depending on the age of our listeners, where I was filming it on high eight, <laughs> transferring it to VHS. It's not eight millimeter, is it? Uh, it's well, it's uh, uh, high eight. It's it's like it's not, it's not eight millimeter, but it's it's, it's it's a similar format. So then we are transferring it to VHS, editing from VHS machine to VHS <laughs> machine, <laughs> posting people VHSs in the post, or inviting them to a room to watch it. Yeah. that's where we were at. <laughs> um, but it did the job uh, very successfully. Um, then I um, ended up going uh, back to the other side. I, I Charity work was great, but I didn't make much money at it. Mm. So I got into property. My dad is um, sort of like the top hairdresser in Ireland, like Vidal Sassoon in Ireland. And he'd also yeah. been into property. And he said, look, if you want to make some money, go into property. So I did that for a bit. Managed to make a bit of money, which was helpful at the time yeah. and still <laughs> helpful. Um, but was quickly drawn back towards the sort of work about you know helping society. So I started running mentoring programs for mm. kids that were at risk of getting kicked out of education with positive role models and stuff like that. Again, I made a film. And again, it was really helpful in <laughs> securing more funding and everything else. Was it still VHS editing? Uh, or, uh, no, you upgraded let me think, to, uh, let me think, let me think. It was DVD. <laughs> 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 so it's slightly upgraded. But um, but yeah, so, um, and then I was doing that for a bit. And then I decided to go back to university and did an MBA. Mm. And what was super exciting about that for me was it brought together these two kind of sides to me. So the business side mm. and the kind of trying to make a different side because I did my research uh, on venture philanthropy, mm. which sounds like a big word, but essentially it's just applying kind of venture principles of venture capitalists yeah. to, to, to the good. Yeah, to yeah. For, 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 for impact mm. rather than just for, for profit. Mm. Um, and after that, that's when Be Inspired Films kind of came out. It was kind of like the way I tend to think of it. You know, Steve Jobs said... When you bring together two apparently disconnected things, uh, you know, you can kind of create a new value. Mm. So his was kind of like tech and arts. Mm. And so for me, it was kind of like, you know, a film and then social impact. Mm. And so that was my thing. And that was Be Inspired Films was born. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. That's so cool. What does, what does impact mean to you? I think, you know, and, and I think that's the reason why, I'm, just to give you some context, mm. today I'm launching um, my online impact accelerator. It feels very, very exciting. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you a little story afterwards, but... It's kind of making me think about what does impact mean? Mm. What does impact mean to you? Well, I think it's making a difference. And I think, um, you know, what I love about... Uh, there's a concept that I really gravitate towards, which is on the edge of inside. So mm. anything that I'm involved with, I always feel more comfortable at the edge of it. So if you're too in the middle of it, um, you can be blinded by that viewpoint. Mm. And if you're sort of towards the outside, you can f feel an affinity with the concept, but you can also uh, respect and appreciate the, the other side of it. So if you're too much just on the social impact side or you're too much on the profit side, you're kind of polarizing the other side in a mm. way. So what I love is for impact to me incorporates both uh, the for-profit side and the not-for-profit side. So mm. sometimes it's called purpose beyond profit. Mm. So for me, impact means given whatever tools and resources are available to trying to utilize them for a purpose that benefits lots of people. Yeah. And there's many people out there specifically listening to the show who are driven by the idea of wanting to make a difference and wanting mm. to make an impact. Mm. Do you believe it's possible to do that while still making money? Oh, totally. Absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, that's very much what my, that's where I sit, if you mm. like, in that middle ground. Because actually, if you look at charity or social enterprise on its own, it's absolutely tiny in comparison to the the 
you know where the money flows through mm. you know businesses where most of the resources flow so until normal businesses become more purpose driven and more trying to make a difference or act as a force for good then the the impact we can make is really small really sure. in all honesty yeah and there's uh, there's a concept called b corp yep people who've never heard of b corp and i know there's a fabulous for people who, are, who can't see this i am holding a fabulous brochure that Ravenel gave me the first day we met and it's been in my in my basket um, ever since because I just thought it was such an incredible way of saying hey this is the kind of work that we do and uh, it's always it's always you know, sort of a hand's length away from from my from my kind of computer and I've got it in front of me and there's a face there's a picture of you smiling with a humongous red circle with written B the change yeah B as in the letter not just B E yeah tell yeah. us about tell us about B Corp so B Corp is basically a movement of for-profit businesses that are acting as a force for good in the world. And so, not to say that B Corp is the answer, but B Corp is one of a range of movements where businesses are trying to be more um, impactful and um, more aligned with purpose. And so for me and many of the other B Corps, uh, so I was, uh, Be Inspired Films was one of the founding B Corps in the UK in 2015. Mm. And now there's around 200. Worldwide, there's around 2,000, but it's growing all the time. People like uh, Patagonia, Kickstarter, Hootsuite, um, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. These are the kind of, some mm. of the others. Um, so, um, it's exciting and it's sort of, most of us feel like we sort of found our tribe, mm. you know, we weren't quite social enterprises. We were definitely not charities. We're not just out and out pure businesses in the sense that we really care about, you know, our impact and, and, and making a difference. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a pretty cool movement. Yeah. And how do you get, so how do you get involved? How do you get B certified? B Corp certified? It's pretty, um, you know, intense. So you basically, you can do the B Corp certification, um, sort of questionnaire thing initially, even if you don't certify, it's a really good way to benchmark yourself and see what areas you can improve on. But you go through this thing, you get a score, then you have to sort of identify certain areas where you can improve. And it's things like how you look after your staff, your culture, your supply chain, your environmental impact, your flow of capital, all these kind of things. <laughs> Um, so if you get through it, you're kind of you're fairly watertight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and you, you've also been nominated for a few awards. You've won a few awards for the work that you've done. Yeah, really, really nice to be able to sort of get recognized to sort of know you're 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 doing something good. If you yeah. like. So yeah, last year at the recommended agency register awards, we won the video agency of the year and best agency for effectiveness. And tonight is uh, we're up for two more, so we're up for production company of the year and corporate communications agency of the year. So fingers crossed. Yeah. So now you've got a team. Yeah. So that's yeah, definitely. In terms of like the business journey, mm. um, you know, I started the business uh, and for quite a number of years. So I started in two thousand and nine. I was the everybody mm. you know i was doing the marketing the accounts the social media the business development the the delivery the producer on every single job you know sometimes nine or ten projects on the go mm. i was traveling all over the place it was close it was crazy yeah. yeah and two years ago um i um recognized that i you know couldn't do all this on my own i was the bottleneck um and I employed a few people. Some of them worked out. Some of them didn't work out. Sure. It was quite a bit painful, you yeah. know, and uh, kind of then last year kind of shrunk the core team back to me, just me again. And this year now I've grown the team again. So we've got one full-time member of staff, two interns. Mm. We've got a new office, dedicated space. It's really exciting. And I think it's sometimes you don't get it right the first time. Mm. It's it, But I'm s I was so much more diligent and careful this time and, and gave it really interrogated what roles do I need and yeah. what does that role look like? to help that person succeed just as much as for it to succeed for sure. me. 
So yeah, and is and it, so when you do gigs, when you do projects and stuff, do you do you hire freelancers and do you bring in people in? Is that how yeah, the model works? That's how it works. So we have a core team of us, you know, managing the the business side of it, and then we bring in uh, people to deliver. So, but for us, it, uh, it's an ethos that I developed really early on. I I, I see those people as my team. Mm. They're re- they're people we use all the time. They're they understand our values, our ethos. We don't want to really work with people unless they kind sure. of imbibe our values. Yeah. So the client gets us a, an experience, if you like. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's a more effective way for us, and it's quite popular in our, in our industry because you know sometimes you got loads of projects on the go, and then others less so, other times less so. So it it works. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So, what's been one of the most exciting projects that you've been involved with? Yeah, I think one that kind of comes back to me again and again and again was we did TEDx at the Royal Albert Hall. Mm. I mean, you know, we started um, doing live streaming probably around two thousand and ten. 2011 and one of the oh, first wow. yeah a long time ago yeah which is why we're kind of often hired in for the the big stage gigs because at the end of the day in theory live streaming is really easy but it's kind of like if you want to deliver a really high production value and you know you know how to troubleshoot and do when things go wrong that's kind of like people don't want to take a risk unless you've got a really good track record so we started quite some time ago and actually vince uh, lane a good friend of mine and our main technical director he actually learned live streaming from the, the paddy fields of West Bengal in India. Wow. <laughs> so because we, you know, he sort of, we, we set up a 24-hour stream from a temple out there and then they were doing a pilgrimage like through the fields and he set up like, some kind of bonded 3G thing going on. <laughs> and, you know, he really became so good at doing it like on a, in really difficult circumstances that then when we were doing it back here, it was like a total yeah. <laughs> in comparison. Yeah. So we started doing gigs. We did our first... Uh, you know, TEDx event at TEDx East End um, around te- 2010, 2011. And within, my God, like a year of that, we were doing TEDx at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when I look back So how at was it, that? That must have been insane because I've been to the Royal Albert Hall when my when my <coughs> mum sang. Mm. Is it, um, what is it called? They do it every year where they bring strangers coming together to sing. Oh, wow. It's not Jerusalem. It's, I forgot the name now. She's going she's gonna to be very <laughs> angry at me that I forgot this. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But there was, there was, Literally thousands of people in this room singing, coming together, singing so you know, this beautiful. hallelujah song. I forgot. Yeah. And it's insane. It's huge. It's huge, but it it has a really intimate vibe at the same time. Mm. But it's, it's it's just such a special venue. I mean, it's it's sort of up there. It's known as one of the, the most amazing venues in the yeah. world, really. Yeah. But my God, looking back on it. So we were going live at midday and we got in on that morning at 7 a.m. We had to run the cables, test everything. We were not familiar. We'd oh, never wow. worked in the you venue before. The, you didn't get it the day before. Did, we'd done side visits and stuff, but we didn't get in before. No, uh, to set up. And my gosh, it all it all came off. It was we were blessed, you know, because like there were times earlier in the day where we were down in the sub basements under the stage, like <laughs> shouting over, going, "Does this one work? No, does this one work? You know, for these patch bases. Yeah. And stuff. Oh, it was. It, it all came off fine. But it wow. was. It was so that's a bit of pressure, right? So let's so let's say so you you got an email. Did you get an email or a phone call? How did you get? How how was the first contact? How the person that, that said, "Hey, Ravenol." Yeah, it was an email. So you get, "Hey, Ravenol, we're looking for someone to come and do this live TEDx. Can you do yeah. it?" Yeah, they must. They either seen us do it at TEDx Stand or something. They 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 were recommended. We were yeah. recommended. And um, yeah, I mean, it was it was it's one of those ones that I I'm really proud of, and it's kind of like you know if you're ever having that kind of self doubt or a moment, you know, you kind of go. We did TEDx yeah. at the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. it's it's a starting at seven a.m. and we had six hours to, to yeah. pull it off. And um, it was five actually. Yeah, it, w- it was just yeah, it was it was incredible. Cool. So that was a real high. Yeah, and there's um, am I right in saying 
that there's a part of your journey that involves Buddhism or spirituality. Was that was that something? I, I remember this conversation right. we had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually was a monk. That was it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was <laughs> <laughs> so it's really funny because I know what kind of monk I was, and so often when I say it to people, they think like some people think of oh, Friar Tuck or something. Yeah. <laughs> um. So no, I was. Uh, I lived in India as a monk for a year, uh, and I lived in East Africa for two years when I was doing that work. So no, I was a Krishna monk. Um. So I had the shaved head, the robes. Oh, the uh, Ari, you know the the people who go uh, around London, Harry, Harry yeah, Krishna. Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, my yeah. days. So it was an incredible part of my journey, and it's actually it still f- forms the kind of the backdrop of my I guess uh, not I wouldn't say worldview I suppose universal view sure. in a way um, and yeah it was a really special time I mean it was it was a very uh, specific time in my life so when I came out of it in the sense that I you know it's still part of my fabric but when I started realizing you know maybe I'm gonna like get a job and like have a family and stuff it was a little bit like coming back into the Earth's atmosphere from mm. outer space. So it was a bit of an adjustment. How did, how did you get into that then? How did you, how did you go from wanting to be a <laughs> yeah, you know, know. stockbroker? Well, this is a thing, isn't it? Yeah, what to a, go what to a, India and being a, an Christian monk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting because as a young guy, I mean, I remember I was about seven. I was standing in our um, laundry room area at my, at my, with my mom. She was putting the clothes in the, in the airing cupboard. And this, this thing was going around my head. And I was asking my mom these questions. I was saying, so... If I didn't exist, like, would all of this exist? <laughs> and if if I didn't exist, would it matter to me? <laughs> kind of like just this idea of sort of existential, you know, relative perception. Sure. And it was like really on my mind, you know. <laughs> I was only seven. So like, Are you as taking I mushrooms at seven. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, and then as I got, went through my teens and stuff, you know, I, there was a side of me that was really materialistic and really, you know, enjoys the pleasures in life, and I still do. And I, I don't think that necessarily have to be at odds with each other. But I wanted to understand the the bigger meaning behind it as well. Mm. And, or was there? Some people don't think necessarily think there is. You know, like just that question. Yeah. And. Um, it was a burning thing for me. And uh, as I, I went to university, did psychology, I thought maybe that would help me answer some of these questions a bit. And I was really disappointed because psychology at the time was desperate to be accepted as a hard science. So anything that you couldn't see, like even happiness, they sure. said you can't measure it. So yeah. it, doesn't exi- yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it doesn't exist. But you, but can. you can measure depression as much. As, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was a bit disappointed with that. And then I kind of, um, I started looking at, um, uh, what was it called? Um, Anthro... Um, Oh, it was a, it was a, it was a, a different type of philosophy. I can't think of the name of it right now, but um, Aristotle. Uh, yeah, no, it was um, what was it called again? Can't. It was these. No, it was these. Um, Gnosis. Okay. Gnostic anthropology. Yeah, and it's sort of ancient, like it pulls on the Greeks and you know all these different things. But it talked about stuff like the essence and the the ego, and it was talking about the idea of maybe karma or reincarnation, some of these things. And it was really interesting, um, but it was quite intellectual kind of. And then I started. Um, so what happened when I was fifteen? One of my friends from school randomly said to me, "Hey, I'm I'm going to all the different world kind of faiths and religions and stuff. And I'm going to go to the Hare Krishna temple on this Sunday. Do you want to come with me?" And I was like, "All right." So that, that was when the stockbroker days, you know, I was wearing the suit and tie. <laughs> and uh, on my way into town in Dublin, and this, this gang of punks who, for some reason, had seen me at some other thing or whatever, didn't like me, came and chased me and punched me up a bit and th- smashed a, 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 a strawberry milkshake on my head. What? It was horrible, yeah. So I met my friend, you know, we managed to sort of shake those guys. We went to the Sunday feast at the temple. And needless to say, I was a bit distracted, so I, I didn't really take much of it in, to be <laughs> honest, but I, I did enjoy the food, <laughs> vegetarian food. Um, but we asked afterwards, you know, oh, I was lovely, could we have the recipe? She said, oh, why don't you come next week and whatever. And we were like, whoa, no, it's okay, thanks. So we didn't go back. 
And ironically, after I finished my degree, I went to San Francisco for about four or five months working and with the same friend, right? And then, you know, we kind of fell out. It was, you know, I ended up sort of, you know, you know, breaking up with the people that went over there, whatever, and I was kind of on my own. But then we ended up, I got this flyer on the street to a, a what's called a Rathiatra. So it's a big, like, street festival of chariots, which they do in, all, in many cities around the world at the Golden Gate Park. So I thought, I'll go along to that, and I bump into this same friend there. So here we are again at this Hare Krishna festival, like, what, I don't know, maybe six, seven years from the first time. Yeah, yeah. Um, no punks or milkshakes in sight. And no, no, thankfully, yeah. <laughs> Um, and it was really nice and stuff. So I, you know, I had the food, a little bit more interested in the philosophy and stuff. But again, sort of, you know, I had my ideas, you know, whatever. We had a bit of a chat. Went back to Ireland, and a friend of mine was in a band, and he used to go to the temple on Sundays every Sunday. He said, "Come along." So I went along, and there was an extraordinary guy there who was who was doing talks. Um, I found myself um, like really uh, finding it tangible. It wasn't like armchair philosophy. It, what he was talking about was really down to earth, really practical. And it was kind of stuff that when I looked around the world based on what I was hearing, I could go, yeah, I can see that. That's like, it kind of feels like relevant. Mm. Um, and it wa- I was an atheist. I mean, I totally wasn't religious and I still very much am not I'm not into mm. that sort of fear-based kind of thing or just duty or you know you should this you should that guilt yeah or any of that it's kind of like you know i needed to really feel like there was a solid like philosophy philosophy behind it so i was really really attracted and this guy was like so cool he was kind of like an indiana jones a spiritual indiana jones (laughs) he was a really cool guy and i started going along on sundays and then one day he said to me you know what um he used to put on festivals for the public Mm. you know initially around ireland and england and he said well you know you could come traveling with me you know if you wanted and i was like ding I was just like, I just want to hang out with this guy. Yeah. And so I essentially, I was his right-hand man for like seven years. What? Uh, yeah. And we went to Africa, did big tours of Africa. You know, we went to, to Israel, you know, all around the UK and, and Ireland. And um, yeah, it was a really amazing journey. And, and then he, in 2001, um, he passed away from stomach cancer, which was... Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, which was... It's a weird one. I don't know. I mean, we probably don't have time to get into it on this one. But like some, recently, I was talking to another filmmaker about trauma. Mm. And this whole idea of, you know, when things happen to you, everyone deals with them in different ways. Mm. But like trauma, I kind of see it as like something that happens and it, it's like a, a punch that goes deep, not just it hurts you on the outside, it goes deep, deep, deep inside you and causes a real internal wound mm. and then comes back out. Now you can choose to recognize it and, and deal with it properly or whatever, or you can choose to just pretend like nothing's happened, which is what I did. Yeah. And that shit, you know, comes out later on. Yeah, I mean, you mean? yeah, no, I, I had a, a, an experience, a similar experience. Um, final university, I come back to uh, my my room on campus. Um, I it was just after New Year's. I'd just broken up. Well, my my ex girlfriend at the time and I had broken up. Uh, I'd had my wallet stolen in the streets of Madrid. I get back to my room and I have a letter, and it's a letter from one of my ex's dad who said she'd died. And so I remember going, oh my God. And I I remember going, I cannot deal with this right now because it was my final year exams. Yeah. So I'll bottle this up and I'll deal with it later. Yeah. And it took me, so this is 2006, 2007, let's say. Um, It took me eight years. Mm. Eight years until, thanks to uh, both my girlfriend and, and a friend, Stefan, um, who lived in, in, in Stuttgart, who happened to be the same city as where my ex's parents lived, 
to be able to translate and get in touch with them because I'd never known what happened. Oh, really? I had never known what happened since then. I wrote a letter and so forth. And I visited them. So I took took the plane, went over to Stuttgart. It was like this really emotional trip. My friend was like, stay with me. Don't worry about it. I met them and it was like this really deeply hu- like human experience of just um, them taking me to the cemetery and me seeing the grave of my ex and then crying my balls out. And then mm. it, it took me eight, eight years to process that mm. pain of that womb. Mm. Um and and I get that. I get the concept of like, you know, mm. you can bottle that now, but it, mm. you, you ain't running away from it. No, and it's one thing, I mean, my experience, because that was one piece of trauma, there was other things that happened and various things. And it's, my experience is, it, it it's like, in a way, carrying around like dragons inside you. It's not just that they sort of finally come out. It's like, they can be quite volatile in yeah. the in the, in, in the interim period and yeah. they can cause a lot of havoc in your life Yeah, because you're not dealing with it probably because you feel you can't or it's maybe conscious or unconscious or whatever sure. so yeah so so you know that was that was uh that yeah. was a bit of a big one and so so what did you learn from that experience of of having a shaved head and walking around the streets and, and singing yeah. eric krishna and yeah well i mean many things i think um you know it's really interesting as i kind of encounter different um you know things now in my life now you know if you look at elite athletes they they do a very similar thing you know they have a a goal which is kind of extraordinary and it's quite ambitious whatever it happens to be mm. uh, or even you know very successful business people mm-hmm. they um they often get up very early they often abstain from certain types of behaviors because they it interferes with their goal they'll often they need to be very disciplined they need to control their emotions they need to be able to control their mind and and focus themselves so it's really interesting just sort of seeing how what can at first glances appear maybe a little unusual sure that actually uh it's not that unusual really yeah it's just that you've got a really aspirational goal in a particular uh, what was uh, the goal so the goal i mean it sounds like incredible but the idea is to uh, it sounds really funny <laughs> even saying it is to like achieve pure love of god i mean and yeah, yeah. so and therefore of all beings yeah all conscious beings like is that nirvana is that was that, is that um, different i guess you you could it might call it that i mean in a Vedic uh, philosophy, so nirvana would be kind of uh, equivalent to what's called the Brahma Jyoti. So there's different levels of realization of the absolute. Sure. So one would be the Brahma Jyoti nirvana, which is essentially the mm. some people might call the you know the blinding white light or that sort of place where there's no suffering. It's just kind of like Got it. Uh, the energy it's of of the supreme. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, then it's said that there's actually the personality of the supreme mm. which is kind of mind-blowing for a lot of people they can't get their head around the idea that if there is a supreme so people talk about the universe or mm. you know whatever because it's easier for them to kind of they, that they can kind of relate to but the idea that the supreme could have personality is kind of mind-blowing because our, our our framework our reference point is so much in the realm of the temporary and the limited that we think putting personality well we think it's putting personality on the mm. supreme would be limiting it yeah but at the same time how could we have it and then the Supreme couldn't? Mm. Do you know what I mean? In one mm. sense, it's also limiting. So, so yeah, so it's, it's that idea that um, it's kind of beyond nirvana, if you like. Sure. It's a, a personal relationship uh, of, of service and, and, and so, devotion. And so you're into that, into that um, what do you call it, religion? Or what is, what is it, spirituality, it's, it's spir- movement? Spirituality, yeah, yeah, very yeah. much, yeah. And what happened? What, what got you to thought of thinking, it's time for me to grow my hair? Well, yeah, <laughs> although that wasn't because Ravindel's got longish <laughs> hair. Got, yeah, yeah, imagine yeah. Richard Branson, but a browner hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, um, well, it, yeah, I mean, the the main thing was that um, you're aiming for such a rare um, thing. Mm. If you think about it, like, uh, really pure love is very rare to see even in this world. What to speak of, like, taking it to another level. So uh, you're aiming for a really high thing. And Did you, know, you experience it? Yeah, definitely had experiences, um, tastes of it. I don't know that it's, like, it's not a... Like, I wouldn't say that I achieved a permanent solid state of it, mm. but I definitely had some incredible tastes and experiences of it. Yeah. Enough to make me like really kind of feel like it's, it's, I, I really, it's yeah. there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I realized that, you know, that it's like, I guess, playing a sport at a certain level. You know, you reach a point where you go, this was so rewarding. This was so good. It's really difficult for me to maintain this yeah. level anymore. Right. And so. You know, maybe I'll play recreational tennis sure. now, more <laughs> than, than playing at pro level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, you know, I realized that because uh, I was a celibate monk, you know, all throughout my entire twenties, that's a serious, wow. really serious thing. For yeah. how long? So from about twenty-one to like twenty-nine. Yeah, Ravenel. With, with mostly with Dedication. success, you know, mostly with success. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of hiccups here and there, <laughs> but you know, it was. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a big deal. Like it's a, it's a, it's a high, you know, it's a high, a high standard that you're trying to attain. You yeah. Know? Do you um, think? Do you, but do you, do you think, um, just like athletes, yeah. right, where it can become almost too much, totally. right? It can be obsessional, and it can be like almost like you're trying to attain an, an almost an like, unreal expectation of who, how you should be, and and they see it. You see it, athletes crack all the time. They go off and do drugs. They go off and do you know beat their wives or mm. you know kill people. You know they always got these yeah, yeah. really drastic. I behavior. totally, I totally agree with that. I think, I think when when you're trying to achieve something extraordinary, you know, um, it ain't gonna be easy, and you do, you will have to sacrifice something else. So like for every gain, there's a there's something that maybe you have to let go of or whatever. And yes, that was kind of partly what it, what it was. Is I realized that actually where this was a really rewarding enriching experience it got to a point where now i need to be situated differently mm. now i it, it's better for me to i realized that i you know it was, it was like i was a student so i i did that mm. i actually need now to move into a different phase of my life which mm. is you know when i have a family and i'll be sure. and actually the the, the 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 amazing thing is is that actually the the vedic philosophy says that you know 99% of people will do that anyway and actually you know you can still practice a spiritual life having you could be a billionaire it doesn't it's not that you know you, you know genuinely yeah. it's it's not money's not the thing it's just what what do you do with it right so why do people think you're a hypocrite if you have money and you say you're spiritual well i don't know that well some people might because yeah. they they maybe want to see it in a polarized way mm. but if you really understand spirituality it means that you know you um, you see that whatever you have is kind of in your care. You don't keep it anyway. We know that it's only on loan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really. So it's kind of like it's almost in your care, like mm. for, for a while, for a certain number of years. So it's kind of like, uh, so if you see, um, for example, that, you know, I've got billions of pounds, but I understand that it's money's like energy, that, you know, um, I've been kind of gifted, I've been given the responsibility of having this. Mm. So that way you could be seeing it in a really... Um, as a great blessing to have mm. that money and to be able to make a difference in the world, for example. Yeah. You know, and if it's your karma, you know, you can enjoy it. Well, you know, you, it's yours yeah. as well. But at the same, but if you just think like, oh, it's, it's, it's all mine, you know, and you have a very sort of different yeah. mentality. It's about the consciousness, the intention, rather than the money itself, not the problem. But I think that's a big topic. So I was speaking with um, a friend recently and, uh, you know, I was, I was sort of explaining how I have this relationship to money that's really difficult. Mm. Um because for whatever reason, I, I, I was brought up in an environment where 
being rich meant you were a dick. And so the way that you had to adapt and uh, integrate was to downplay your social economic background. Mm. And so I really brought, I was brought up with this kind of mentality that money's bad and, and you know, if you're poor, you're cool. Mm. And so I'm then realizing as I'm trying to start my business that one of my biggest factors that is holding me back is money and it's around this idea of making money and, and my energy that I have around the idea of making money. Mm. And I speak to my friend and he's like, well, I, you know, I'm Jewish and I was brought up in, in a Jewish community where actually we believe that making money is good because the more money you make, the more you can give mm. and the more you can give back. Mm. So it makes sense that you, so we, we celebrate making money. Mm. Why do you think so many early stage entrepreneurs and small business owners struggle with the mentality around making money or asking for money? I think it's about your frame of reference. So for example, I remember our first job, we did it for 200 pounds, <laughs> which didn't even cover our expenses pretty much. But we didn't, first of all, we didn't have a track record. So we, we, we did it as a strategic move. Um, and then incrementally, you know, we gradually put it up. Um, you know, I think it's about, it's kind of linked to your self-worth, what you think people will pay for your services and there is a sweet spot you see because i don't think any amount of you know others may disagree but any amount of you know believing i'm worth this much you know there's a point where you become an absolute de deluded tosser <laughs> you know where you, where you kind of like do you know what i mean your your value in the market doesn't equal what just a figure that you just pick out of the air just because yeah. you think you want it yeah do you know what i mean but at the same time um it's it's a sort of you have to feel your way and i think you know you experiment you charge something you kind of increase it a bit but i think every time you increase your prices and stuff you have you got to deliver more value mm. I, essentially the way i look at it is is that um money is uh, something that people give you based on the value that you deliver in society so really if you look at the market as being a thing then if people are willing to give you money for it then i guess it must it must feel it's worth it yeah you know? Yeah, it's funny. I got an email from um, one of the listeners who was listening to uh, a previous episode or one of my guests. And I think the guest basically talks about how um, they started charging, I think it was like £15,000 for a coaching program or something like that. And I got an email from, my, from the listener going, that just sounds insane. That just sounds totally crazy, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, it, you know, do you think there there has been this spinning out of control thing around people who have read books about, you know, personal belief and mm. you should charge what you're worth and mm. and then people start putting putting out these figures out the, at the hat of like, okay, I'm going to charge 50 grand for my coaching program. Mm. Um, well, I think it depends, you see, because it all depends on the market that you're serving. So like in some ways, you know, I mean, a good example, um, I'm trying to think of his name, um, he's part of the, K one of the trainers on the KPI um, thing. He's from Darren Sherlaw's company. He basically does uh, the products. Uh, Nick. Nick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And exactly. So he tells this story about how he was up in Scotland. A friend of his, uh, he was doing a business with this guy, and the guy's wife was a masseuse, you know, and she gave him a massage, really sorted him out. He was like, wow, you know, I could send you so many clients. How much do you charge? And she was like, no, 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 I'm not going to charge you anything, whatever. He asked, hit the guy, his, her husband later, and she, he said, oh, well, you know, she charges like 20 quid an hour. He was like, oh, I can't send any customers to you then. And he was like, why not? He said, if you charge 1,200 pounds an hour, then I can send loads of really successful business guys and they'll even fly in here and they'll pay it because they won't think it's worth it if you charge 20 quid. And I know that it was so good that I'll be able to genuinely tell them it was brilliant and amazing and do it. But 1,200 pounds an hour sounds totally bonkers. It does sound bonkers, but to those particular people, it's not. In their frame of reference, 
Especially if it's recommended from another guy like them. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. In their frame of reference. It's like oh, what I've found. This is really interesting, right? So when you're working, we work with a lot of charities because we're doing social impact stuff and some of them are smaller and you have it in your mind like a certain way of the, what the client expects, right? So sometimes you'll quote a price, you'll do the job and then there's, sometimes they'll ask for other stuff and you're kind of feeling uncomfortable because you're, you're thinking and often correctly in that type of client that they want more but they're not going to pay more. Mm. So then when you're dealing with a, like we've dealt with some really big corporates um, and you know they have a completely different frame of reference so they might ask you for some extra stuff and in your mind you're freaking out going oh you know you want us to do this but they're just thinking just, just bloody do me. it and just bill me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's no big deal. Of course you're not going to do it for I free. I love that. So it's it's all about understanding the client and what they expect. So when you're quoting, it's 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 quite hard sometimes because if you quote too much or too little, you ain't So how do you it. know when the how do you know when the price is right? Well, I mean, I suppose you got to if you can, you can do a little research from other, you know, whatever. Um but you know, if you don't have access to someone who can tell you, you got to experiment. <laughs> yeah. see. I've got a, I've got an anecdote, um, and I'll keep this anonymous. So, and, yeah. and 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 I know this person listens to this podcast. But um, so someone listening to the podcast reaches out to me and says, "Hey, I'd love to book you in for this event and this conference that we're putting up as one of the speakers." And I'm like, "Yeah, sounds great. Let's meet up for coffee and let's have a chat about what you what you need and how I can deliver value and all that stuff." And so we're <laughs> we're having this conversation, and then uh, then she goes. Oh, you know, so what are some of your requirements? Like, oh, you know, well, where is it? Uh, is travel involved? You know, how long is it? Um, how much is my intervention going to be involved? You know, Q&A, is it filmed? You know, all these questions that I have now. And she goes, yeah, it's about 15 minutes, you know, plus like, you know, 10 minutes Q&A. Uh, it's going to be in London. Uh, you can stay for as long as you want, you know, the whole day, whatever. And I go, cool. And I go, and I go, so what's your budget? And she goes, well, what's your fee? And I'm in my head going... Yeah. I have no it's a tough fucking one. idea how much I should be asking here. Yeah. All I knew is that I was going to ask more for what I charged the previous corporate client that I charged for an hour, which honestly was looking back at it now was peanuts. Yeah, yeah. So I just go 500 pounds. Yeah. Thinking, oh, that's huge. That's enormous. That's, that's insane. Yeah. And so she kind of like, I can see in her face that she kind of goes, yeah, we could probably do that. And I go instantly, shit. That was way too low. I know yeah, that was yeah, too low. Yeah. And so I asked, I said, look, because I know you listen to my podcast yeah. and you know I'm honest, yeah. I will do this for this prize because I said I would. Yeah. But how much but tell me asked? for next time so yeah. I know. Yeah. How much I've asked? Uh, and she goes, well, let me put it this way. You're definitely on the cheaper side. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I'd expect anything from 2000 to 7000 Wow. Amazing. And that just blew my mind mm. because the only person that was getting in, in the way of me saying one of those numbers is how I felt. Mm. And, and yet... I've, I've since spoken to a few friends of mine who are speakers and, and kind of in that circuit um, and they get paid anything between three and a half thousand pounds to seven thousand pounds on regular gigs. Mm. And so I spoke with them about this and, and they're like, they're like, no, you don't understand. They pay, they want to pay money because they want to make sure that you're going to deliver, you deliver value anyway. So by undercharging yourself, you're actually positioning yourself as someone as cheap and that, that, that in that case, they don't want cheap. You know something you know? really, really interesting? Daniel Priestley said something uh, a while ago, you know, like that um, British people are find it w hard to big themselves up. He said something really interesting. He said, you're not bigging yourself up for your benefit. You're bigging yourself up for their benefit. Because if they don't feel like you're someone worth listening to, they won't actually listen to what you say. You see yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's a weird There's thing. A yeah, yeah. It's a psychological thing. It's weird, thing. though. It is weird. It's, I mean, weird. it's, it's very weird. But, yeah. but there you go. And actually, something really interesting. I, I recently did a, a gig. Um, I went over to Paris to do a speaking gig, and I got paid 1,800 quid 
for for an hour's uh, gig and it, uh, you know that was fantastic right um and whereas often before i would just go you know people would ask me to go and speak wherever and i'd just go and do it yeah i wouldn't even yeah. really think of it you know yeah yeah um but but at the end of the day you know it, it depends on the client and, and also the other thing is is you got to there's a lot of subtleties isn't there because an hour thing could be just to 10 people yeah. or it could be their annual event you know yeah. it's a big deal and they've got a budget there's yeah. a, a, a um someone someone uh, someone i know who, who told me this uh, and I loved it. He said, uh, the way I see it is I don't want them to spend more on catering than they spend on me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to spend more on canapes than they do on spend on me. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, which I thought was, was was a nice way of of, yeah. uh, of seeing it. And and just to finish on that, like a friend of mine um, who's become very sort of popular on, on, on the sort of content creation, social media sort of scene in the last few years, um, now is like charging anywhere between 11 and 25,000 pounds an hour, which is mind-blowing. Um, but you know what? <laughs> Obviously, they they feel that you know that's kind of the ballpark that people oh, yeah. are paying for that kind of person. Yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah I get that. I mean, uh, yeah. for sure. And that, and that's the kind of you know those kind of people when they get booked in. That's what he was saying. Same thing. Another another friend I was speaking to mentioned that he said, "Yeah, I know someone who was the um, you know had a big position in this big big company, and now he, he goes off and, and charges." Yeah, like twenty grand. It's just ridiculous. Mm. Anyway, coming back to to sort of uh, wrapping up the the conversation for of today's interview, I want to make sure that we get a little bit of few tips mm. for our listeners who are, you know, budding content creators and they're thinking about they want to do more videos, right? Because mm. they've heard Mark Zuckerberg saying that pretty much Facebook by twenty twenty, I forgot what it was, or something stupid, or twenty twenty five is going to be predominantly all video. Yeah. Um, they understand that video is king. But they, you know, they're, they're shy. They think they think they need to get lots of material. They're not sure how to do it. They feel camera shy. Mm. What are some of like your top three tips that you'd like to share with them? Yeah, so I think there's three kind of things to look at. There is strategy, story, skills. So you either hire in the skills, get someone else to do it, or you can do something for yourself. But this, you know, creating content is not the thing. You've got to create content, but you've got to become a good storyteller. So you got to, and that's all about your audience, understanding the audience, mm. connecting with them, understanding what, like, why should they really give a shit about what you've got to say? So really valuing and respecting your audience and making sure you, you relate to them and make that connection and then deliver what, you know, how you can help. Um, but then you tie it back to a strategy. So it can be fun creating content, but it can also take a lot of time and you can spend quite a bit of money on it. So I often sometimes say to clients that they say, we want to make a video. I say, don't bother. And obviously, you know, they're like, what? You, you sell videos? And I'm like, no, I, I don't sell videos. I'm not interested in selling videos. I can help you try and achieve something in, in your business or in your organization. And I think video is such an amazingly powerful tool to do that. And I often talk about these two things, showcase videos and relationship videos. Mm. And showcase videos is what we've often traditionally thought of. You know, if we... If we Look at me, I'm great. Well, kind of, but it's more front and center, homepage. Okay. You know, it's like, you know, you'll hire someone in, it's high production value. But actually, there's a lot more currency, I think, in relationship videos, which is basically the idea that you don't have to get it all in one shot, impress someone, do everything in one video. It's like the, the production values can be a little bit lower. It's more like having a coffee with someone on a regular basis. So we yeah. all see our news feed is a regular thing. If people pop up in your news feed on a regular basis, even if you don't watch their content, they're on your radar. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so yeah. you can put out regular video content and you can theme it around, you know, um, you know, like little mini series and you can make sure it's content that's good for your audience and it's consistent and it's nice and short and whatever else and you can start to engage with people. You can build a relationship with multiple people uh, at the same time. Yeah. It's like, it's almost like the best, next best thing to being face-to-face -face with people. Yeah. Most of us are pretty good one-to-one, -one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how can you do that at scale? Yeah. That's video. Yeah. 
So practical tips, um, keep it simple. Um, you know, people love real people, real places. Don't try and be anybody that you're not. Make sure it's a level you can maintain, which means, you know, it's a lot easier if you're just being yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of energy to try and be someone else. Yeah. And it won't come across as good. You yeah. know, don't be obsessed. You know, it's not about the, the gear or the tech or it's really about um, the, the value you can deliver, the connections you can make and having a real conversation with people. And it's not about millions of views either. Yeah. It's about finding an audience building it up organically there's no quick fixes i know mm. on social media we all want to hack the magic button yeah but you know what you'll as long as you're trying to find it don't worry you'll be spending money on lots of special super courses and all the rest <laughs> of it um but if you really want to kind of you know build it up it's just it's just you know it's the, the classic old thing you know put out good value be consistent you know, and you put in the put in the work. You know, yeah. connect with people. And you run a course, or do you still run that course? That yeah, finished? yeah, absolutely. So obviously, Be Inspired Films creates sort of um, quite high end content. You know, video production, animation, Albert, live Albert streaming, Hall. all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Yeah, um, but we have another brand called Video Know How, mm. which essentially helps people, entrepreneurs, change makers, business owners, to take advantage of video as a powerful tool, but on a budget. Mm. And so that we, we, we structure our whole training around those th three things, strategy, story, skills. Yeah. Um, and it's helping people to, um, yeah, to basically to, to tap into that, that power cool. without having to spend Is there a website? Yeah, videoknowhow.co.uk. Okay. Um, we do open courses a couple of times a year. I think the next one is July the 12th and 13th, I think. Okay. Um, and then we go into organizations as well and train whole teams and stuff. But if people want to check it out, they can check that out. If people just want to connect with me and sort of, you know, uh, ask me questions and stuff, I'm more than happy to, to have a chat. Uh, they can connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, at Ravenol. Um, hopefully, there are any, I don't think there are any other Ravenols. Out there, <laughs> so you'll find me. <laughs> um, or if you want to connect with the company, at Be Inspired Films. Great. Um, before we wrap up, but um, I've got a couple of questions for you. Go for it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to... I wanted to say thank you and acknowledge you because the first time we met, I just felt that this very genuine, authentic kind of guy in front of me, we just connected, we were talking stories and uh, one of the things we unfortunately didn't get to talk about today, which I really wanted to, which is around the hardship of entrepreneurship mm. and the ups and downs. I know that you openly talk about this on Facebook and social mm. media and we had this big conversation around this, how it's easy to put up a mask and how hard it is at times and actually my TEDx talk I gave mm. in Cardiff was very much around that. Mm. So I just want to say thank you for that, for showing, for mirroring to others that it's okay to show that aspect of the journey too. No, you know? I appreciate that. And I, I feel re really, it's really important because a lot of people talk about now, there's, a, there's a, one of the TED Talks I watched last night, we went to a TED Global sort of cinema experience thing. It was talking about someone who wrote a book called Alone Together. And social media is kind of like, we're all together, we're so connected, yet we're so alone. Yeah. And it's just the whole kind of thing, you know, I... I don't consciously do it, but you know, I'm, I'm going to this awards tonight. I might win, you know, I'm going to post and hopefully we win or whatever. And people go, wow, you know, you win so many awards, you do this, you do that and everything. And that's great. Um, so occasionally yeah, I, I will, I, I like recently I was feeling like super shit about something yeah. and, um, I kind of undenied about whether I would share that. And I thought, you know, I'm going to share it because, um, yeah, just like you said, who knows, you know, it, uh, I'm, I'm putting it out there that, you know, there's, there's different sides to it. And yeah. I think it's really, I think it's really important, you know, now you've got even like Prince Harry and all these guys talking about mental health yeah. and, you know, and everything. I think, I think it's really important. Yeah. What's yeah. one thing that most people don't know about you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what do most people not know about me? I, I, a lot of stuff people know about me. I'm going to quite free. <laughs> I share, quite, like, I'm quite open. Um, 
Uh, there are some few things that uh, people don't know about me that I'm not going to talk about here. <laughs> 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 but um, maybe one day, but not right now. Um, but yeah, something a bit more trivial. I, I don't know. I guess I used to swim competitively, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. That's, cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's a risk-free one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you used to swim competitively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No way. Yeah. Very cool. Um, if you could get a billboard mm. in the middle of Piccadilly Circus, mm. and you could have one message mm. that everybody that would see it would mm. read, what would mm. that message be? Well, just because it's top of mind, it's it's sort of our new l- mantra, you know. Um, if we tell better stories, we'll have a better world. Because, mm. you know, stories are integral to how we imbibe values, mm. how we, you know, um, relate to the world, how we um, form our ideas around ourselves and others and everything else. So if we start to tell better stories, we'll have a better world. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. I like that. Inspired. Last question. What does being unconventional mean to you? Being unconventional means... Um, challenging the status quo. It means not accepting anything on face value it means um speaking your mind Mm. being honest Mm. um you know uh testing the boundaries uh it means not being afraid to be in many categories and not let people box you into just one Mm. it means sailing your own course being your own person charting your own path Mm. regardless of whatever else because doing that in itself is is sort of integral to who you are love that Ravinal, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And um, where can people connect with you online? Where do you hang out most? Uh, I'm on Facebook quite a bit. So Ravinal Samuel Chambers. Um, I'm on Twitter at Ravinal. Um, people can email me at hello at beinspiredfilms.com. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting Instagram a little bit. <laughs> I'm Be Inspired Rav on there. So come and say hi. And cool. uh, always good to connect. A pleasure. Nice one, man. So good. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's interview as much as I did. I loved the way that Rabinal was able to go deep, fast, and share his story. And what an incredible journey of going from being a broker to a monk and then ended up uh, doing an MBA and working in Africa and doing stories. And it was just so great to be reminded that there isn't just one way of doing things. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to share with a friend. And I really look forward to hearing from you over on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and tag me in your posts to let me know where you're listening to the show. I can't wait to see your favorite spots. Until next week, have an amazing time today and I hope you feel inspired and empowered to go out there and do work you love.